Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode is part of the At Home with Dominican series, produced by the Department of Alumni Relations and presented via Zoom on October 19, 2022. This recording was captured from that online event, so please forgive variations in sound quality. Director of Alumni Relations, Vimla Homan, introduced the speaker. everyone. My name is Vimla Homan. I am the Director of Alumni Relations here at Dominican. I am class of 2013 and 2016, uh, and I am delighted to welcome our special guest for what I think will be a really engaging conversation. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Timothy Milinovich for this presentation. He is an Associate Professor of Theology here at Dominican, and he received his MA in Religion from Yale University and a PhD in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America. A faculty member at Dominican since 2014, he has previously taught at St. Vincent College and the University of the Incarnate Ward. So I'm pleased to welcome Tim. Tim, can I turn it over to you? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pamela, for the wonderful introduction. And thank you all for being here. It's great to see all of you. And it's, it's great to be able to share these stories with you uh, and to share what we're going to be doing. I'm going to be sharing my screen here to be able to do a couple things. The one is uh, I have a little bit of a PowerPoint to kind of guide what I'm going to be talking about and also to show some of the pictures uh, the, <laughs> that we have for this. So one of the things that is remarkable about Dominican is its, uh, its architecture and how it looks. And you can see by this picture, which is just, this is a picture that you can find on the internet of Dominican. But as you can tell, there are times when you're walking on campus that, especially if it's in the fall and it's, it's dusk or coming to evening, you feel like you're on the set for a horror movie. And uh, this is something that has captured the imaginations of students, faculty, uh, sisters, and alums for years. And when I came to Dominican, I had, I had had an interest in horror fiction when I came here. And when I was interviewing, I was asked what courses I'd like to teach. And, and so I was, uh, I was explaining that I'd be happy to teach all the biblical studies courses that they offered. And then they said, well, are there any new courses you'd like to teach? And I said, well, to be honest, I've always wanted to teach a course in theology and horror fiction. And immediately Richard Wood said, that's fantastic because we have a haunted campus. And I was like, well, that's perfect because it definitely looks like it would be a haunted campus. It's not uncommon for a university like Dominican to have stories of being haunted. So what we're gonna do today, we're gonna do this in two parts. 
we're going to look at some of the ghost stories that are here on campus. And then in part two, we're going to talk about what is the relationship between horror and theology or religion. And that's one of the most common questions that I get when I tell people I teach a course in theology and horror fiction. They say, well, aren't those two opposites? And what we're going to get into after we talk about some of the very common and prominent ghost stories around campus is that uh, actually horror and theology are, are very much overlapping. They treat a lot of the same things and ask a lot of the same questions and pursue a lot of the same goals. So we're going to be getting into that in the course of this conversation. But first, let's go ahead and talk about Dominican. So as you can see, just the cloister walk itself offers a great perspective and background on, on what, what this university can offer. As far as Dominican goes, Dominican is, is of course not the only haunted campus or, or campus that has ghost stories to it. There are lots of places that have, that commonly have ghost stories go along with them. So wooded areas, rivers and lakes, libraries, places of worship, theaters, colleges and dorms. These are all places that very commonly have ghost stories or lore about them. So when you have Dominican University placed as it is, next to Thatcher Woods, next to this Plains River, it has a library, it's got a chapel, it's got theaters and a bunch of dorms. Needless to say, there's a very high chance we're gonna have a lot of ghost stories. But what is unique about Dominican, because I've, the campus I went to at St. Vincent College, uh, where, I was, uh, where I was an undergrad and then taught as an adjunct for years, was haunted, it had haunted stories. Where I taught at, at Incarnate Word before coming here had ghost stories. But Dominican is unique in the sense that there are numerous tales, uh, numerous stories about hauntings for almost every single building except one on campus. And the other thing that's unique about Dominican is that these stories persist, even up to and including this week. Uh, I continue to get stories from students or individuals of strange phenomena or strange events taking place where they're at. And then of course, as I mentioned before, the Gothic architecture adds a, an important level to all of these stories. And when you're looking at this time of year, it all just comes together to give Dominican a very special, a special place to be able to look at and tell ghost stories. So the first thing that's worth considering is the fine arts building. And I, I just wanna point out, this is my own picture and I didn't doctor it at all. This is the fine arts building on a sunny Sunday afternoon. And there are lots of stories about the fine arts building, which is where I'm actually presenting this from at this moment. The, the fine arts building has two theaters, uh, one major theater and one practice theater. And there have been stories for decades about people hearing uh, individuals practicing lines, singing, arguing, having conversations. And then whenever they walk into the theaters to see what's going on, there's no one there. This is relatively common in theaters, but we have two of them. And it seems to happen relatively commonly. The other thing that's common about uh, the fine arts building is individuals, faculty, and, and students will talk about hearing footsteps in the hallways. And there, then there's no one there. Uh, I just heard a, a faculty member telling a story where they heard footsteps walk up to their door and turned to knock on their door and they walked over the door and opened it and there was no one there. Stories like this, that's just one example, but stories like this are fairly common 
among faculty members that are in the fine arts building. There, there have been events with the elevator that have been odd in terms of uh, faculty members saying they'll walk in at night and the elevator will just open for them uh, whenever they enter the building. And then one of my favorite things is whenever I was starting to collect stories for this class and other things like that to get some of the lore about the buildings here, I asked some of the security guards and fine arts just on a whim. I'm like, hey, do you have any stories about you know, events or supernatural phenomena that might have taken place here. And their faces went gray and they said, we don't like to talk about that. That's when I knew there was a lot to this. The other thing about the fine arts building is we have practice rooms on the third floor with pianos. And a number of faculty have commented that there are times where they hear pianos playing late at night and they walk by the practice rooms and no one's in there. So those are some of the things with the fine arts building. And when I'm asked, because I work here on a regular basis, and I come here sometimes late at night, I've had students ask me this, I've had other faculty ask me this, how do you feel about working in a building that's called haunted? And um, I kind of treat it as, I, I treat the ghosts as coworkers or friends, like, you know, they're here and that's fine. They don't seem to be a problem at all. The other big room that has a lot of centerpieces of conversation is the social hall. And I just wanna point out here, the one thing that stands out about these are the six, if you can see my cursor and where it's uh, circling here, uh, there are six what look like should be faces over the, the doorposts. And it's a very strange thing with those faces. We can't really get uh, an understanding of what exactly took place with those faces. One of the stories is that in the 1970s or 80s, uh, there were students studying in the social hall late at night. There were faces there, if stone. And at one point, the faces started, and there are different accounts of this. The faces started screaming. The faces started laughing. The faces started shouting at the students. Any of those are acceptable reasons for the students to end up running out of the room at that time. But the result that we have are the fact that there are no longer faces there, if there ever were. So we have this, this challenge of the fact there are no faces. And one thing that I've had students tell me that have given tours is that they're told whenever, if anyone asks them what's going on with the faces to tell them they're under construction, but there's no known construction going on with those faces. The other uh, issue in the social hall is this painting here on the side of the Blessed Mother, and then she's holding Jesus. You have the two cherubs on the side, and then these four creatures at the base on the podium, or the pedestal there. And there have been several stories, enough that even a group of ghost hunters or ghost debunkers came to Dominican and did a podcast on this painting and saying that they didn't really find anything to support it. But some of the lore is that sometimes these cherub-like creatures at the base will laugh, uh, at students. Other times, these creatures will uh, shout or the, their feet will turn into hooves. So there's uh, one thing that seems to be clear is that late at night, students that are pulling all-nighters seem to find that painting unsettling. Granted, if you have students that are pulling all-nighters, they're having a lot of Mountain Dew, perhaps dehydrated. It's not surprising. They're going to feel a little odd at times, uh, but that painting seems to be a center point of a lot of their concerns. And then there's also in the social hall on the wall to the side, a painting of Samuel Mazzucchelli. 
And like many old paintings, uh, students feel that when they're walking across the social hall, the painting is watching them. Just on the other side of that wall is Power Hall. And uh, we're now moving from the social hall into what looks like a scene from the hotel in the movie, The Shining. But the, the wood is beautiful, but you do have light shining in multiple directions. And a, a number of students that walk through the social hall late at night studying report feeling un, unsettled when they come to this hallway uh, for a variety of reasons. They don't necessarily see anything, but there's a commentary about feeling a presence or simply feeling unsettled by the darkness or the, the light that's there. Power Hall has a lot of different stories that go along with it. One of the most common, if you see to the right here, there's a stairway that goes up to the dorm that is above this hallway. And the dorm of Power Hall has perhaps one of the most controversial or most variegated stories that we have. What we have in Power Hall is the story of the what's called the room that isn't there. And I haven't been in to see it, but I've heard numerous accounts that there is uh, in Power Hall on the second floor, there are rooms uh, apportioned in a particular pattern until you get to the center. And in the center, it looks like there should be a room there, but instead there's just a wall. And it looks like there would be enough room for a room, but there isn't. And there are various stories that go behind this. One speaks of the fact that there had been a room there, but events took place that were so tragic or problematic that they ended up removing the door, walling up the door, and then covering it up as if it, there was no room there, and it's just a wall now. The, the reasons behind that are various. Uh, there's a story about there was a murder in that room. There's an account that there was a suicide. There's another account that there was repeated suicides, one after another, and it was after the second suicide that they closed the room. And then there's also uh, accounts of individuals who were playing games with a Ouija board in the room and opened up doorways they shouldn't have, and then they had to close the room. At any rate, whatever the account is, at this point, there is no room there, although students feel that from the outside and from the inside, it looks like there should be. And the other thing that comes across, and this happens in some of the other dorms, students report having feelings of dampness or strange breezes when they walk past that space. Also in Power Hall, there's a clock that doesn't work. And some individuals have tied all those stories together that that clock stopped working the moment that that murder happened or the second suicide happened or the Ouija board happened or what have you. And I appreciate individuals taking multiple lore and trying to pull them together. That shows multiple steps in oral tradition. But as far as what actually happened, it's very possible uh, none of those things did. To, to our knowledge, there, there have been no murders or uh, any, any tragic events on campus uh, to our knowledge. The Noonan Reading Room, and I, I call the Power Hall, the Noonan Reading Room, and the Chapel, and the Social Hall, these are what I call the Fab Four. They're all kind of interconnected. They're also right near each other and, and even connected to each other. The Noonan Reading Room used to be the old library, and students talk about feeling a presence that comes out of nowhere. Uh, they'll be alone, and then suddenly they feel like they aren't alone. 
There are accounts of late at night individuals hearing whispers in parts of the reading room going over to look to see if anyone's there and there isn't. Because this is an area that's open 24 seven and because students use it all the time, it's not surprising that you're gonna have stories like this happen. But uh, of all the occurrences of stories that I hear, this is one of the most common and you know fairly benign. The chapel is, which, which is right next to the, uh, to the Noonan reading room, uh, has similar accounts individuals hearing things while they're sitting in the Noonan reading room sometimes feel like they're hearing things in the chapel and they'll go to check it out. And what do they end up hearing? They hear whispers or laughter They're in the chapel. They hear singing or they hear, and this is one of the most common, footsteps running up the fire lock. And then they go in to look and there's no one there. Also, we have pianos playing here in the chapel. People will hear a piano playing, they'll go in and no one's there. It's a very common thing on, on Dominican campus. Apparently a lot of our ghosts play piano. There's just a lot of piano playing going, a lot, going on in the afterlife here at Dominican. And one of the strangest things about Dominican, uh, there are stories for every single building, almost every single one, and it would take far too long to be able to get into all of them and the various ways that they come out. One of the most intriguing things about Dominican is that it doesn't matter how old the building is or how new it is. You can still have ghost stories. Some of the oldest buildings have ghost stories, not surprising, but even new buildings like Parmer still have ghost stories as well. And then you have what is most unique is I, I've mentioned that almost every single building has ghost stories. There's one building that doesn't. Strangely, Aquinas Hall, the building that has the morgue or the cadavers that the medical programs use, is the one building that does not have any stories of ghosts, which seems counterintuitive, but perhaps our ghosts are just very respectful. But that is almost every single building has stories except where we have the cadavers for the medical programs. So having talked about this and looking at how theology and horror works and, and working through this topic, the most common question that I get is, well, how are those two things the same? And one of the funny things about this is that they're actually a lot more alike than it might seem. We have a tendency to over-sacralize theology and to over-negativize horror. But theology is not all about angels dancing on the head of a pin. Theology is also about the muck and the mire of life and the challenges of evil. And how do we wrestle through that? How do we pursue justice and an understanding of an ultimate divine agent in this. And horror is not all gore. There is a lot that horror tries to instill and understand in terms of the very fact that it tries to define evil is also an attempt to limit evil, to mark out that evil is not all consuming. It has a beginning, it can have an end, and it can be overcome. And so when you start to look at things like that, you start to recognize that theology and horror are not two separate circles. They're really two overlapping circles. And they both cover main questions, questions regarding justice, the meaning of life, the presence of the divine, personal autonomy and morality, uh, the existence of origins of evil. And a person could say, well, is that theology or horror? And the answer is yes. They both do those, and they do them through pretty much the same ways. They do it through narratives, 
through explaining moral codes or presuming moral codes and offering rituals and patterns, things that human beings can appreciate in how we go about our lives and trying to figure out, well, what comes next and how do we stay safe and away from evil? The two are very often connected. Uh, for example, you have examples of horror in the Bible. Horror as a genre is perhaps one of the most ancient genres, and it is unique as a literary genre in the sense that whereas every other genre in literature is defined by what it has, uh, components within it, horror is defined by how it makes you feel and how it's intended to make you feel. And in stories like the flood, the plagues in Egypt, uh, you have the necromancy uh, where Saul calls the spirit of Samuel back to life to ask him questions in, in 1 Samuel. You have apocalyptic texts and exorcisms throughout the Gospels. There's a whole lot of examples of horror being used in the Bible to get across key points about theology. And then on the other side, you have examples in horror where horror uses religion to get across key points that horror wants to talk about. One of the best examples of this is The Exorcist, uh, where you have horror using religion to tell a horror story. So both of these things get into the unknown uh, and journey into the unknown. And a lot of this comes from kind of a, a background with the concept of neuroscience and to the root cause of what's going on. And I, I have this example I still remember from when I was in Texas stepping out into, it was a dark night and I stepped out from my apartment and I heard a branch break. And what I immediately thought was, what was that? And I started to realize as soon as we hear something like that, we have a stimulus, like you hear a sound, our mind, because of evolution, immediately starts doing question trees and branches going off in various directions. And one of those questions, the first key question is, is that me or not? Did I do that or did something else do that? And the very fact that you're asking that question and asking, is that me or not me? Is it danger? These are the very same questions that neuroscientists say opens up to the possibility of then looking for a divine agent. Because you're, if you're able to say, is this me or not me? If it's not me, is it a danger? then you're also able to go through a number of other questions and try to figure out, okay, then what's causing this? What's causing this other thing? What caused this other thing? And you're able to look at the question of ultimate divine agency. What's in charge of any of this? In other words, our very wiring in our brains that wires us for theological questions is the same wiring that allows us to ask questions and engage aspects of horror. The other thing that's significant for horror and theology is that they both try to describe what is the origin of things. So etiology is talking about where things come from, the origin of things, and then a search for agency. What's in charge of this? Both theology and horror attempt to do that. How did things get this way? Both theology and horror try to explain what is humanity? Is humanity good? Is it evil? Is it depraved? And theology and horror both try to have answers to that. They also try to talk about what's the cosmology? What, how is the world involved in this practice? And does nature itself play a role in what happens in terms of what we think is right and what is wrong and how justice can make things right if things had been corrupted at some point? 
you have this ultimate question both of these groups are trying to get at. What is the ultimate agent? Who is in charge of this mess? Whether it's a theologian asking, how does God operate and what is the challenge of evil? How is evil known? Every theologian has had to wrestle with that the same way that slasher novels try to wrestle with the question of, how is this slasher able to do this? Is there an agency that can stop this slasher? Same thing with monster movies and zombie movies. There is a question of ultimate agency and who can bring about some sort of peace or solution to this mess. So in other words, both of these groups look to answers to ultimate questions. What happens in the afterlife? What happens after death? What is death? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What is right and wrong? And then the origins of evil and how to avoid it. Both theology and horror in their own ways try to offer answers to that. And then lastly, both theology and horror offer a critique of culture. In their own ways, theology and horror both address what is human behavior if it is left unchecked? If humans are allowed to pursue everything that they want, what are the consequences of that? And how can human beings be taught to value other individuals and to appreciate other individuals in their pursuits of their own success? The other thing that this does is it looks at the issues of power and the value of human life. What is the role of power and power relationships and how humans relate with one another? how nature and humans relate? And then what about the value of human life? One of the challenges of valuing human life is once you put a value on a life, you can then say, this life is worth more than this life. And these lives are worth more than this life. And both theology and horror challenge the human conscience in saying, is valuing human life a safe way to go or is there a danger in that? Should we rather consider life invaluable? And both theology and horror check the, uh, keep in check humanity's tendency to quantify everything in a particular direction. The other thing that both of these do is they keep in check what is right and what is might. In other words, they constantly ask the question, are you doing what you're doing because it's right? Or are you doing what you're doing because nobody can stop you? Because those two are not the same thing. And if you are doing what you're doing only because nothing yet has been able to stop you, perhaps there are consequences coming that you need to be aware of. And then two other things that come up, uh, the flawed families of the Bible that happen throughout the Bible, particularly in Genesis, but throughout the Bible, kind of show the fact that families are a unique entity. On the one hand, we can romanticize them. We can also understand them as being cages or problems of their own making. And haunted houses in horror fiction can become metaphors for abusive relationships or dystopias. In the same way, you can have the concept of sin or monsters. Sin is presented as a villain in theology, but then also monsters are presented in horror as a way of addressing unjust systems. And in both of those cases, human beings are being called to task for what they're doing and how to make things better for a better world. So I wanted to kind of open things up to your questions.
or comments. I, I know that there have been uh, some comments in the chat. I haven't gotten a chance to get to those, but I'm looking forward to them. Vimla, I'll hand it over to you in terms of whether you want to open it up to the individuals or if you want to go to the chat or if you want to go back and forth, but I'll hand it back to you now, Vimla. Thank you. Thank you so much for your presentation, and I am excited to open it up to alums. We are so pleased to see such a wonderful amount of people here. So we've got around 100 folks on the call. If you want to unmute and ask a question, please feel free to do so. There were some questions submitted in advance, too, so we can go to okay. those later. I, I do have a question. Um, I was thinking that the chapel was going to be the one building on campus that has not had stories associated with it <laughs> and was very surprised here about which building it was and you know what you said makes some sense about why not so would you be able to speak to why what's thought of to be as a sacred space certainly consecrated would be the site of some of these phenomenon thank you sure so i guess it's a good question one of the things that's worth noting about places of worship is that they are through throughout time and space they've been understood to be places where spirits linger and i've had a number of friends who have gone in the seminary gone on to be priests and they've shared stories about churches that they work at where they they sometimes have to go down and tell the ghosts to be quiet the fact that there are spirits there or the fact that there are ghosts there or that there are ghost stories doesn't necessarily take away from the sacredness of it there are different theories about why places are haunted or why ghosts go in different directions. One of the theories about why ghosts collect in a particular way is that for some, some people understand ghosts or spiritual phenomena to be the remnants of individuals' very strong feelings. So it's not necessarily a person's soul, but it's rather a, if somebody has a very strong emotion, that energy doesn't get destroyed. It, it, it has to go somewhere. And so a church would be a place where if people are going, going in, in and praying over a very difficult thing, or if people are going into a church at very difficult times of their life, baptisms, funerals, weddings, things that take place at a church are very high emotion events. And if you think about people going into a church on, at the quiet times of their lives, praying over po very powerful concerns in their life, that's going to be a lot of emotion. And so that's one of the theories of why ghosts end up in churches is because there's all this spiritual energy that people have kind of left behind. And I've heard one, one friend kind of a, liken it to if you've ever walked into a room after there was an argument and you walk in and there's a saying, you could cut the tension with a knife. It's because you can sense the fact that an argument took place. And the same way that that happens is the same way that uh, some individuals understand how people can leave their feelings in a very real way, their feelings and emotions on the floor or on the walls of a building, and then those things remain. So that's one of the theories behind it. Thank so, you for a great question. I'm just going to switch to the chat really quick, um, but sure. if, could you talk a little bit about what, if any, stories are associated with Parmer Hall? Oh, <laughs> so Parmer Hall, the one that I've heard of the most, the clocks on the Western Wall uh, on the fourth floor, they can't keep them working. They don't know what's going on, but they keep breaking. And so there have been different theories about that. 
some of the nursing faculty have said that it was because the spirits of the children from the NICU that follow the nurses home or follow the nurses to the office uh, mess with the clocks. Other theories are that's the closest spot in on campus to Thatcher Woods. So that's another possibility, but that's one of the stories that that's the most concrete. Of course, things like hearing, because it's a very large building uh, and with the atrium and everything, there's a lot of different sounds that people hear that people find troubling. troubling. We don't have any stories of cadavers standing up or anything like that. It's much more mundane in Palmer, but even though it's a new building, it has, it has stories nonetheless of presence, footsteps, and the clocks. Some people also talk about they feel like some of the rooms are possessed, but that might just be some of the lighting. Thank you. Sure. Does anyone have a question who's in the audience? I just saw somebody else had commented that they had the, the old elevator open up for them too. So that's good to know. <laughs> so stories about Lewis and the tunnel. Lewis is very haunted and it seems to be the higher up you go, the more haunted it gets. The fourth floor of Lewis in particular, where the art programs are, that one is, I've had art students for years talk about strange events going on up there. A lot of these happen late at night when they're studying. But uh, just this week, I had an art student tell me that they were up there and it was late at night and everyone had been there. Uh, and then some of their friends left and they were the only one. And then all of a sudden, the door to the side just started shaking like somebody was trying to pull on it, but there was nobody on the other side. So stuff like that. And then uh, there's a lot of comments about hearing footsteps on the third floor of Lewis. And then as you go down, it, it gets a little bit more reasonable. Strangely, I remember the first time Bill George took me on a tour of Dominican and took me into the tunnel. I was like, okay, if, if there's a zombie movie, this is where it gets shot. Like this is perfect, you know? But strangely, there aren't a lot of stories about the tunnels. Um, it's almost as if just being in them is enough to frighten people. And then I would expect if there were an apparition on campus, that would be either number one or number two of where I'd expect them to be. Uh, but we, we haven't had that at this point. It's a very good question though. I have another question from uh, the audience asking sure. if to your knowledge, if we've ever had to call in any priests who specialize in bad spirits because of uh, any additional like harm to students? Have we ever asked for assistance? So that's a great question. I don't know that we've had to call anyone in. And I had to preface, I have to preface this with the fact that for a while we had priests on campus that could have done that without having to go outside. So it's possible that could have been handled in-house without necessarily anybody knowing about it. So to my knowledge, there has not never been outreach because you, if you're gonna do an exorcism or a blessing or something like that, only a bishop can allow for an exorcism. So that would have to go out to the archbishop or the cardinal. But to my knowledge, we haven't had any events where an external priest has had to be brought in, but we have had priests on campus that I guess the best way to put this, for example, Richard Woods uh, was a consultant on the movie The Exorcist and had a background in, in studying some of this stuff. So it could have been handled in-house if there were, as far as that goes. But there's no evidence of going outside. Thank you. Sure. And there's, there's no exorcisms performed here, to my, to my knowledge. 
Uh, let's see. One question that came up, have any of the people who related stories said they felt like it was a friendly or non-friendly presence they felt? For the most part, it's fairly benign. There's not necessarily uh, a sense of being positive or negative. It's just a presence that doesn't seem to have any other tinge to it, just a presence. That's, that's what we most commonly get. From, from all the stories I've had, there doesn't seem to be any sense of danger or any sense of negative feeling other than a student being a little freaked out by feeling a presence when they don't see anybody, which can be unsettling in its own. I wonder if you've heard any stories from athletics. Um, Seth from class of 08 was wondering that as well. Oh, so I've definitely heard athletes tell stories about dorms. I haven't heard anything in particular about the athletic areas. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if there were, but I have not heard anything specific uh, that's coming to mind right now uh, of the athletic areas. Did, did you have anything that you've heard of, Seth? <clears throat> no, not particularly. Um, okay. But I was interested because I spent a lot of time in that area. Okay. Uh, and then my other question was related to events that have transpired on campus. Any of those like actual events like Candle and Rose ever been tied to um, hauntings or stories or anything like that? I have not heard that. Um, that's a great question because Candle and Rose is a very, very moving event, but I haven't heard of any stories connected to it. But if I were writing a horror movie about Dominican, I would make sure to have Candle Rose in there in some way, because that's a, that would be a great candlest, catalyst to an event or a great thing to include in that, uh, especially with the cloister walk and everything. Uh, it's just perfect. But no, I, I haven't heard any connections to that. I see some interesting stories shared in the chat. We have uh, about 15 minutes left together. If anyone wants to maybe share some stories too, let's see something in the chat that I can read uh, from Julie Wanda. What I heard when I was at Rosary was that a local psychic had predicted a murder to take place in a small private college in the Midwest with tunnels. I was a commuter and my friends and I were always spooked going through the tunnel to the parking lot after leaving the grill. Wow. Thank you for that story. <laughs> I have not heard that one either. Yeah, I had not heard that. Although that's a little, that's a little bit of a shotgun blast from a psychic as far as the, a lot of colleges in the Midwest in particular Catholic colleges had tunnels uh, between buildings for, uh, because of the winters, but I could see why that would cause a lot of concern across the board for individuals. And the fact that they're mentioning tunnels and then individuals walking through the tunnels feeling a little unnerved by it. Uh, I can understand that, but I hadn't seen that either. I have a very quick question. Sure. Did I miss it? Did you tell us which building doesn't have any history with feelings or spirits or entities that happen to be roaming around? What, what one building is it? Sure. It was the Aquinas Hall. And uh, it's the building where they have the morgue and the cadavers for the medical programs. And strangely, that's the building that isn't haunted. Thank you. Sure. We do have one more question in the chat. Uh, Megan writes, both my aunts were Dominican nuns. How have the sisters religious fared with the ghosts? Any stories in or around the library as well? I haven't heard anything specific about the, the new library, I should probably talk to some librarians because I have no doubt there's probably stories that relate to that because libraries, they're an area that draws ghosts uh, just like churches and, and woods. Let's see. I'm sorry. What was the first part of that, Vimla? 
I think Megan was asking about the relationship with um, sisters and the ghost story. Yeah. This is, yeah, the sisters. (laughs) So there's not, um, I've talked with some of the sisters about some of these. And for the most part, you know, they, they're like, oh yeah, there's nothing to this, these stories and so forth, which I totally understand. Uh, because what ghost stories are, for the most part, are communities trying to understand the unknown. Communities telling stories to try to understand things that are difficult to work with. And so the sisters haven't really made a lot of hay out of these stories. They kind of just understand them as a part of living on a college campus and living with individuals that that are here that are up at odd hours and other things like that. So there's not really much antipathy towards it, but they don't necessarily embrace it that much either. They're fairly neutral on it, I guess I could say. I'm enjoying going through the comments. These are great. I know. I'm still trying to catch up. That story about the psychic, that's fascinating. I love that. So you collect new ones every time you're sharing this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny. I'll sometimes have faculty or students stop me in the hallway and give me new ones out of the blue when they know that I do this, which is a hoot. Oh, and I see Leslie had a new encounter too. (laughs) (laughs) I encountered something in the Lund one night. I imagine it was Sister Canada. Thank you, Leslie. (laughs) Is the intent to put this all together in a book or an anthology? Like where where are you taking this? That's a great question. For the most part, I do this just kind of uh, because I enjoy it. With Rosary, I haven't necessarily done a collection other than to talk about some of the stories with my students and to present with things like this. There is becoming a little bit more of an area in the field for individuals to talk about theology and horror. I don't know that I'll necessarily use all of these stories, but I might use some of these stories as examples, Mm -hmm. perhaps in some work coming forward. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if any sort of tragic events had been tied to any of these stories. Yes. Uh, So it's, it's extremely common for ghost stories to be tied to events of despair, uh, either a murder or a suicide. And it, it's, it's so common, it's almost a, like a trope in the field. The idea being that if there's going to be some sort of uh, spirit or f- supernatural phenomenon, there has to be some sort of very significant material event tied to it. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's why a lot of times, if there is an event, like for example, the, the fact that the clock stopped in power hall why did it stop at that time they tie it to a murder or to a suicide that happened in the room above it and so that's an example of how things can be connected that might not have any connection or even have been in the same decade but they get tied together because that's how human minds work sure yeah it's it's an excellent question i think there's one more question in the chat um, have you had any discussions with Adam Selzer or Ursula Bielski? Uh, not yet. I have not. I've tried to connect with Ursula, but things always came up where we weren't able to connect. So I haven't been able to have discussions with them yet. But is there anything, John, in particular that you, you think that I would glean from them? Not really. I just okay. uh, know that they write a lot about these kind of things in the Chicago area. So. I sure. just was curious. So thank you for answering that, though. It is one of the challenges that we do have is that Chicago is the second most haunted city in America after New Orleans. So being this close to Chicago is going to give us a lot of stories to go with that, too. <laughs> I did not know that. We have some competition, yeah. too, is what you're saying. <laughs> We've got the Des Plaines River and Thatcher Woods to our west. We've got Chicago to our east. So 
yeah, we're going to have some ghost stories all around us. All right. If there aren't any more questions, um, I do want to just thank you all for joining us. It was wonderful to have such a nice group of alumni. Um, and thank you, uh, Tim, so much for your time in presenting this. I know it was like a highly anticipated presentation. Thank you, everyone. It was a pleasure being able to, to work with all of you. And just thank you for being here. This was great. Thank you so much, thank Vimla. You. Of course. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. If you didn't have a chance to ask a question, please feel free to send it to us. Uh, we can certainly try and address it. I hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your fall day. Thank you so much. The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.